Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the prospect of a no-deal Brexit and Westminster's take out the trash week before everyone pops off on holiday. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, our political editor, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator Gideon Rackman and Miranda Green, Deputy Opinion Editor. Thank you all for joining. And if you enjoy this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Much of the political week in Britain has been dominated by chatter about the growing prospects for a so-called no-deal Brexit. As Theresa May received a gentle rebuff from Brussels for her checkers plans, both the UK and the EU turned their attention to what might happen if there's no formal withdrawal agreement by March next year. Cue chatter about stockpiling food, medicines running out, planes not landing and international isolation. But what exactly would a no-deal Brexit mean and would it really be that? bad. So Alex Barker, let's just begin by talking about what we mean by a no-deal Brexit, because the UK has triggered Article 50, so at the moment it looks like in March 2019 we leave come hell or high water. But even if there is no formal deal in place, and this is what people call a no-deal Brexit. Exactly. In simple terms, it means the UK will leave without a withdrawal treaty. The EU treaties will cease to apply on the 29th of March, and the UK will be a third country in the purest form. There would be no remaining bilateral arrangements between the EU and the UK to manage customs, airlines, citizen rights, nothing. So that's what essentially a no deal would mean. But there are certain levels of how it would actually look, because if we just play this out, that everyone's gone away for the summer. I'm sure there will be a lot of progress behind the scenes, but officially there won't be that much that actually happens. Everyone comes back from holiday in September and one can assume there will not be a huge amount of Brexit process from where we are now. So if everyone stays in that stalemate, then people will begin to talk on both sides. Well, actually, are we going to get any deal at all? Indeed, the worry here about the potential for a no-deal exit, either because they can't agree a withdrawal treaty or because they agree a withdrawal treaty and then it fails to get through the House of Commons, is quite high. I mean, if you talk to the negotiators here, it's 50%. And frankly, they can't really see how this will clearly work through. They're not quite sure what the landing zone is. And so really, it's anyone's guess at the moment. But if we do end up in a situation where there's no withdrawal agreement, There are different forms of no deal. The purest one is the kind of legal situation we see at the moment. There's a huge gap. And frankly, though, there isn't the infrastructure on either side to be able to apply and enforce the law in a kind of systematic way. We don't have the customs officers. There aren't the inspection posts. There aren't the kind of facilities at the Eurotunnel, at the ports, to be able to manage this in a way that's not hugely disruptive. And so the question is, how much do each side do on their own 
to limit the amount of pain there is in the initial phase. And in a way, it's a kind of transition that you would have before you reach a steady state where the UK is on you know, third country WTO terms with the EU. And that period might take months, a year, where emergency measures would be taken by the EU and the UK to try and keep the flow running of goods and so forth, and to patch up their legal arrangements to make sure there aren't any gaps that would put financial stability at risk and things like that. Gideon Rackman, I thought that's an extraordinary statistic. Alec just said that 50% chance from the EU's perspective. You know, I thought it's been 50% chance from the British perspective for some time, just because of the dynamics of the Conservative Party and what have you. But you opined, I think it was maybe even years ago now, about a train crash Brexit, as you described, this idea that Britain spills out the block by accident or even on purpose. But there is a view among some Brexiters that this is actually the way to go now. And you hear in the language of some people like John Redwood, Jacob Rees-Mogg and what have you, saying, well, if it's going to be the Chequers deal that's going to keep us tied into the EU for a long time, better to take the hit now, have a bit of disruption, as they would put it, and then just get on with our lives. But I think that would be underselling what it would be like. It would be a colossal failure on the British government and the government's infrastructure if this happened, do you think? Yeah, well, we don't really know what it will look like in practice. And in part, that will depend on preparedness. In part, it will depend on how the two sides want to play it. I mean, one of my darker worries is that from the EU side, although I don't think they would want prolonged chaos, they might not mind maybe a month or so, just to make the point, which is very, very important to them, that this is really a bad idea to leave the EU and that all the things that come with it that we're taking for granted, like regarding them as almost natural phenomenon, aren't. They're legal phenomenon. And so it's possible that uh, you could get real chaos. It's a question is also to what extent has the British government prepared? Will it, as this prospect becomes more real, be able to mitigate some of the more shocking aspects? Because if we have things like the three-day week that happened in the 70s or chaos at the ports or whatever... That will be curtains for the government and for any politician associated with it. So they need to try to get round it. I mean, I have friends in the civil service who say that they're thinking that at the ports they'll just wave stuff through. They'll do no checks at all. It'll be a good, great time to be a drug smuggler. Not exactly taking back control either. No, not really, but possibly a way of avoiding the really alarming things of food running out on the shelves. But even that might not work because you could have no checks at Dover, but if you've got them on the other side at Calais things could still be very slow. So one thing that Brexiters would say about this, Alex, is that the Brexiters who believe that the WTO option, as they prefer to call it, could be a good thing, is that it would totally disentangle the UK from the EU, that it would not have to follow a common rule book or what have you. It could start deregulating, it could do all the things that the EU has not wanted Brexit Britain to do. And one of those would be the money. And we've heard from Dominic Raab, who's the new Brexit secretary, who popped up last weekend to actually try and put the money back on the table. Because I think in Brexit's view, the money was given away far too quick and they're trying to reopen that. But if the UK didn't pay that money, surely the EU would spend years, if not decades, chasing around international courts to get this money, costing Again, more disruption, frozen assets, you name it. Indeed, it's pretty hard to imagine a situation where there is no deal, the UK doesn't pay, but at the same time, transitions to a smooth WTO relationship with the EU where trade carries on as before. You know, this is a 
pretty fundamental breach from the EU's perspective of the kind of commitments that the UK makes in international law. And not only would it be pursued through whatever legal channels are possible, I think you would see the EU taking a pretty aggressive line in, say, the WTO, where it's a consensus organisation. When the UK is trying to re-establish itself there, I'm not sure the EU is going to be particularly helpful. Yeah, I think that is probably the core examples of a broader point, which is that although the Brexiters dream of being able to give a metaphorical two fingers to the EU and and not giving them the money would be a big example of that, they can't get around the fact that they need a cooperative relationship with these countries. They can't just say, well, you know, we're going to turn our backs on you and do your worst because their worst could really be damaging to Britain. And so if you had a no-deal Brexit and we refused to pay the money, well, then what incentive is there for them to make things easy? And Alex, what would you describe the EU's no-deal preparations like? Because in the UK, one of the things, again, that Brexit have been saying is that Theresa May's government hasn't done enough to prepare for a no-deal Brexit. And one of the agreements out of the Chequers meeting a couple of weeks ago was to ramp up those preparations. And Mr Raab is going to talk more about those preparations as the summer goes on. But the EU must be doing its own stuff as well. Has that ramped up recently? The EU has been ramping up on its preparations, and they really distinguish between two things. First is preparedness, and the other is contingency. Preparedness is a kind of legal question, first and foremost. It's warning the private sector about what happens if the UK leaves without a deal. It's urging them to make preparations as much as they can and realise what the legal gap is going to be. The second question, there's been less work on, at least in public, and I think this is ramping up now, is contingency. It's literally what happens in the first week, in the first month, in the first six months. The dilemma they have is if they start thinking about contingency and about how they might change EU law, say, on the enforcement of contracts in financial services, it suddenly not only hurts their negotiating position a bit, it also stops companies perhaps preparing as much as they would like to see them do because they think, oh, the public sector will take this on. So I suspect you'll see a lot of that contingency stuff emerge at quite a late stage because it's going to be pretty controversial. And at the moment, it doesn't really serve their purpose to put it out. At member state level, those with close links to the UK have been thinking about this for a long time. And you can really see them now starting to do the hiring and do the preparations that they would need. But frankly, none of them really at a scale to deal with a full-scale exit on the 29th that has no withdrawal treaty backing. None of them are really prepared for that yet. And I think the fact that this might happen has given a few countries a bit of the wobbles. I think that's very true. You know, we've heard from HMRC in Britain that they say they are fully ready for any kind of situation in terms of customs. But as Gideon, as you said, it would simply have to be to throw everything open and just hope that it all basically goes to plan. But you can see how we get into this situation because going back to what happens in the autumn, we've got the October council meeting where everyone's been focused on as this is the moment where some kind of deal is going to get put together. And you can see how that slips. And by that point, it's six months countdown until we're in no deal territory and that may be a point where talks do fall apart because if there's no basis for progress because Theresa May has 
compromised quite a lot in the dynamics of the Conservative Party with the Chequers deal. But I think as we've heard this week from Michel Barnier and lots of people in Europe, if you're going to get a deal, it's going to have to be compromising even further. If she hits a wall of how fast she can go, then talks just essentially break down. And that's when you drift into this kind of territory. My, my belief is that somehow, in the kind of British way, they'll muddle through and that because a no deal is such a bad idea, it won't happen. And that in the end, they will have this last minute compromise, which actually is also the way the EU tends to operate. Things go right up to the wire and then they have a last minute council meeting and so on. I think the problem with that vision, though, is that the nature of trying to get the deal in place means that you can't really do it at the last minute. You've got to get stuff through Parliament, unless there's some kind of almost standstill agreement that you could get passed very quickly. But there is a danger that people think they can leave it to the last minute and then they just find they can't. And of course, the other thing as well is majorities in the British Parliament, the MPs don't want a no deal. And I think opinion on that might change. I think that at the moment, about 38% of the British public support a no deal Brexit. You can see that if the talks are still stalled and there's perceived intransigence by Brussels, that will tip public opinion towards a no deal. And then that could then be reflected by MPs. But at this point, we could assume that MPs would do something to try and stop a no deal. But as you say, um, there's going to be a huge blame game going on. And if the hard Brexiters can portray this, and it's not that difficult in the current climate in Britain as the fault of an intransigent EU who hate us and, you know, we've got to stand up for ourselves, that number could creep upwards. And also I wonder whether in some in the Labour Party might not be thinking, well, actually a no-deal Brexit and the chaos that followed would finish off the Conservative Party and leave the country open to a Labour victory. And finally, Alex, the obvious way to avoid a no-deal exit is either to extend, rescind, pause, whatever language you want to use, Article 50. What's your sense on that? I know we've heard from a couple of people in Europe who are saying this is a possibility. Sebastian Kurtz, the Austrian Chancellor, for example, has raised this as a possibility. Do you think that is on the radar of people in Brussels and how might that work? Absolutely. I mean, there are scenarios where you could see the date extended, but you've got to be quite careful about the kind of circumstances in which they would think that that is a good idea. What they worry about here is if there's a withdrawal agreement with Theresa May and it's shot down in the House of Commons, I'm not sure they know what the plan B would be. If it's shot down because the Northern Ireland backstop is too uh, harsh it would be quite difficult for them to backtrack in a really meaningful way to allow that to then get passed a month or two later. If it's around the fact that it's basically a customs union and the Tory right don't like that, then again, you'll end up in a place where the alternative is a FTA model with quite a harsh backstop. And so what they would do to adjust the deal to allow it to get through the Commons is quite hard to see. Now, there are circumstances where they could envisage an extension, though. I think one of those, obviously, is if the UK was clearly unable to decide and there was a referendum called, clearly the EU would allow the date to be moved to give time for that political process to play out. They'd also give time, I suspect, to allow for ratification. If there was a withdrawal agreement and it was just taking a much longer than expected in the House of Commons, you could see that. I think they would be very, very wary about the idea of the UK saying, look, we didn't think our first deal was good enough and we want to have another try. They'd be very wary of that. And if there was any 
time given at all, I think it will be quite short, you know, talking in weeks, months rather than a year. And Gideon, politically, that would obviously be very difficult as well, because I think Theresa May has been very cautious about the whole Brexit betrayal narrative. And you've seen that has begun to gradually emerge over the Chequers plan. And if they move that Article 50 date back a couple of months or what have you can see, you know, if it's paused once, it can be paused again is the natural argument. Do you think that would be difficult to do? Or do you think you could sell that as a way to look, it's going to be this no deal and all the consequences that may follow, or just give us a bit of extra time and we'll get there? Do you think people would buy that? Well, some would, some wouldn't is the obvious answer. I mean, I think that. The question is, well, there are numbers of questions, but one is, is the Tory party now irretrievably split? Because essentially the betrayal cry that you're talking about has been made already by people like Boris Johnson, who've resigned and said that even the Chequers deal is too far. And I think that behind that, there is a sort of almost a justified fear on the part of the Brexiters who think that the soft Brexit people behind that is actually a desire to keep Britain in the EU. And I don't think they're totally wrong about I that. Think, I think they're probably quite right about that. <laughs> exactly. So they would be right to be concerned that a delay in Article 50 might then just be lead to a further delay and then calls for a second referendum, etc. But, you know, one of the reasons that I've sort of stopped writing about this for the time is it's such a period of radical uncertainty. I mean, it's really, really hard to tell how this is going to play out because there's so many moving parts just within the Conservative Party, then within wider British politics, then on the European side, also European politics itself is a moving target. I mean, I think one thing that we haven't discussed is that maybe if for some reason it all gets kicked down the road, what will Europe itself look like this time next year after European parliamentary elections with political change on the horizon in Germany and so on? So it's really um, going to keep us busy, but I think it's actually weirdly more uncertain now, 18 months into the process, than it felt just after Brexit Day. season has finally come to an end. After some very bumpy few weeks, Theresa May has made it through to the summer break. The much-rumoured leadership challenge never emerged. Her checkers plan is still standing, just, and everyone is hoping that the Conservative Party will go away for the summer, the tempers will calm down, and everything will come back and be bright and rosy in September. Or maybe not. But as usual, the government sneaked through some announcements in the final few days on foreign takeovers and even extending the Brexit leaving day. It's what's nicely known as taking out the rubbish week in Westminster. So George Parker, when we reach the end of a parliamentary season, this always happens. Lots of bits and bobs are pushed out the door where I hope no one is really looking. Was there anything interesting this year? Well, I think the uh, the one you mentioned there was interesting, the fact that right at the fag end of this parliamentary session, the government brought forward the details of its second flagship Brexit bill. This is the Withdrawal Agreement Implementation Bill for aficionados. But the main effect of this is to overturn the main provisions of the earlier flagship bill, the Withdrawal Bill. Withdrawal Bill, if you remember, was the one that basically took all the European laws and put them back onto the British statute book. Well, unfortunately, we've got a transition period coming up for two years. And so the second bill will actually reintroduce all those European laws that we just thought we'd repealed. So yeah, that's quite a neat bit of work. And I thought, you know, it was an interesting final few days of the session. We also had the interesting spectacle of Dominic Raab, the Brexit Secretary, sitting alongside Ollie Robbins and facing questions about who is really running the show. The answer to that, fairly obviously, is Ollie Robbins, the Prime Minister's Europe advisor. And then at the end of the week, we had Mr Barnier over in Brussels, basically sort of tearing strips off the Chequers plan. So just your usual week on Brexit, really. 
I think on the Ollie Robbins Dominic Robb Select Committee I saw a very good analogy online which was comparing it to the manager of a football club and a director of football sitting side by side <laughs> to each other but I won't take that analogy any further thanks to my limited football knowledge but Miranda on the moving the withdrawal date this is the kind of stuff that to most people they would just nod it through and say fine whatever but it does sort of feed into that narrative that Brexiters have been looking at over the past couple of weeks when we were talking about earlier in the no deal discussion that it's all just beginning to slip a little bit and that very clear timetable that's been set in stone for the past two years is not quite so clear and having this quite big victorious Independence Day March 2019 at least in legal terms doesn't look like it's really going to happen anymore. Well that's right and much to the disappointment of some I mean we've been sitting around this table for two years wondering when the betrayal narrative is going to start. Two very happy years. Yeah and it was inevitable and we're now well and truly in it and so all these details like the piece of legislation that George has just described they seem really arcane and some of them are actually very much to do with tactical management by the government in ways that are very necessary and just practical but they all feed into this idea that much like socialism, Brexit is never going to be done properly. So when we become free of the EU, if it's a failure, it won't be the fault of the Brexiters. And that is a really big deal. And it's a huge deal for the Conservative Party, not just because it's giving the UKIPers a chance to think about disinterring their party and creating trouble for whoever is the next Tory leader on the right again, but also because whoever takes over from Mrs May is still going to have to solve this insoluble problem and as we've discussed before, the albatross will be round the Conservative neck. The extent to which they are all trying to think of ways of, inverted commas, getting Brexit done and then moving on with the real business of running the country and fighting the Labour Party on the tested territory of the economy and other matters, it seems to be completely insane to me. You know, this is going to go on for years. One point about moving the exit date back, there is one significant way in which under Theresa May's plan we would be leaving the EU on March 29th next year, which is although all the EU rules will still apply in the UK, we will of course have no role in writing them. We will have no MEPs, no members of the European Commission and no seat at the European Council. Hence the standstill transition, as people like to describe it, because we are standing still <laughs> in terms of our relationship but have no contribution Indeed. to the future. That select committee, George, I watched that too, and I found it was very interesting, the dynamics, because Ollie Robbins, who, as listeners to this podcast will know, is really the man who is running Brexit at the moment. He's a civil servant who was working in the Department for Exiting the EU and crucially moved over to Downing Street, and that was the moment when David Davis really lost control of the Brexit process and became out of the loop and civil servants don't normally appear in the public eye but he went to the select committee and sort of spent a couple of hours trying to say as little as possible and smiling and nodding and trying to create this new rapport with Dominic Raab but it did strike me Dominic Raab then went to Brussels and tried to again build a rapport with Michelle Barnier very quickly and there's sort of this whole sense there's all these interconnected relationships between very important people who've got some very tough decisions to make but it feels like we're not really seeing the real power dynamic on show here at the moment between, you know, Dominic Raab and Ollie Robbins, Dominic Raab and Michelle Barnier. There's a lot of almost facade going on here while a lot of the technical stuff is going behind the scenes and that's where no progress is being made. Yeah, I think Dominic Raab had an uncomfortable introduction to David Davis's world this week and the relationship with Ollie Robbins is interesting. Henry Mance, our colleague, wrote a very good sketch on the select committee hearing where he said that Ollie Robbins looked like the chairman of a car clamping company and Dominic Raab looked like the man whose car had just been clamped. And it was that kind of relationship. And then the truth is the power resides at the centre on the Brexit strategy and Ollie Robbins is right at the centre and he has been really ever since the last general election when Nick, Timothy and Fiona Hill, the Prime Minister's political advisors, left. 
the political engine room of the government was ripped out and the power shifted to the civil service and Ollie Robbins has the power. And then, of course, the awkward, infrequent press conference with Michel Barnier, which again illustrated to Dominic Raab the awkward imbalance of power in that job. He goes over there and Mr Barnier is very polite and does his usual stiff French bureaucrat routine. And at the end of which he basically says, the centrepiece of your Chequers white paper is completely worthless because we will never accept the idea of foreign countries collecting tariffs on our behalf. So, you know, it was a tough... Who could have predicted that? It was a tough week for Dominic Raab and on top of which the ludicrous no-deal scenario planning which the government is supposed to be overseeing, which included Dominic Raab saying at the select committee that other people might be doing stockpiling of food but not the government. And then when we contacted the supermarkets, they said, no one's spoken to us about this. It's a load of rubbish. We can't stockpile food. So the whole thing has been a bit of a difficult week for Dominic Raab. Yeah, Miranda Green, where do you see we sort of are now? at this point as I said at the beginning Theresa May has made it through this period she suffered through you know she does just keep on going every time something comes along that looks like it's going to tip her over her party gets annoyed the hardliners stop briefing out this at the moment and yet she's still going she's off on her holidays now where do you see her position and where do you think things will be when we return in September? Well I mean you have to hand it to her she has resilience in spades she's sort of Duracell bunny like in the way that she continues in the face of disaster upon disaster and setback upon setback. But it's really hard to see how on earth she handles the autumn because although you said, you know, there's now a slight period of calm descends over the summer parliamentary recess, what happens is that MPs go back to their constituencies and all sorts of stuff can go on when they're got at by their local party. And imagine what the mood is like in local Conservative parties because they are very much more hardline Brexit than the population at large and they will be putting huge pressure on the Conservative backbenchers. And then when she comes back in the autumn, she not only has the clock ticking on these incredibly fraught negotiations with Brussels, and Barnier, of course, as you've said, was already sort of pouring cold water on some of the key ideas in the Chequers deal. She also has to get through a party conference. And this is a leader who has just looked more and more vulnerable. And although she, you have to give her credit for keeping going, I think her position is now extremely difficult, really very difficult. And if certain sort of key people who've been keeping her propped up start to peel off, or if they come up with an alternative plan, it's really hard to see what that would be. It's really hard to see who the personality could be and what the way out of this hole that they've dug themselves into could be. But if they think of one, I think they might act. And I think this is what does often happen during August, George, is that plotters go away and they get very wound up about the state of things and then come back full of beans to do something. And I think one person in particular will be Boris Johnson, who is sort of, my understanding, is contemplating what exactly he's going to do now in the autumn, as in does he end up challenging the Prime Minister? How does he do that? And crucially, when does he do that as well? Because they don't want to move too quickly against the Prime Minister because they might lose. That's one of the reasons why I don't think we saw that leadership vote this summer. But later, as things start to come to a head, if there's still no progress in the talks and Theresa May is still going along with checkers, then they might pounce. They might do. They also might not. Well, you're right. But the, the consistent problem facing those who want to bring down Theresa May is, number one, who else in their right mind would want to do this job at the moment and see through these negotiations? Secondly, the parliamentary arithmetic doesn't change. Whoever is the leader will face the same reality, which is Parliament is not in favour of the kind of hard Brexit that Boris Johnson wants to have. That doesn't mean that Boris Johnson won't do something reckless because there is a nihilistic streak in the Brexiteers and we saw it back in the Maastricht rebellions back in the 90s where everything else is subsumed by their passion for Europe and in Boris Johnson's case subsumed by his passion for himself. And you can imagine, Miranda just talked about the Tory party conference. Last year, 
every room that Jacob Rees-Mogg addressed was packed to the rafters. That'll be Boris. That'll, that'll be Boris and Jacob Rees-Mogg. And I would predict the two of them together in a number of events. And there'll be a sort of separate conference going on off stage. I wouldn't be surprised if Boris Johnson does try to go for it. I don't think necessarily Boris would have a plan of what to do next were he to succeed in removing Theresa May. I also think it's quite unlikely that the parliamentary party would hand him the job on the plate, even if the party grassroots might want to, whether we get onto the shortlist of two is a different question. But all sorts of turmoil, I think, is about to be unleashed. But I think, George, you're absolutely right when you just remind us again that they have fire in their belly on that side of the argument inside the Tory party. And so they're overriding kind of religious fervour is for Brexit no longer their party. And actually, some of the things we've seen over the last few weeks, the dramas in Parliament have demonstrated that actually the Remainers, even those who've really been trying to do something concrete like Dominic Grieve, etc., when push comes to shove, they're still quite loyal to the Prime Minister and they can be persuaded to back off. You know, that's why you had the insane example of Dominic Grieve voting against his own amendment and marching all his troops up to the top of the hill only to march them back down again. But the Brexiters don't feel that way. This is their moment. It's taken them decades to get here. And so they could do something reckless. Well, thankfully, we've got a few weeks before we have to think about all that. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Alex, Gideon and Miranda for joining us. Now, we will be back next week, but not for another instalment. Over the summer, we're going to be having a series of interviews with some interesting MPs who I think are going to be making the news over the last half of this year. First up is going to be Liz Truss, who's the Chief Secretary of the Treasury, Instagram and Twitter advocate, and someone who is making waves within the Conservative Party. all that in the meantime if you like this podcast and would like to read more from the ft do take a look at our latest subscription offers which you can find at ft.com offer 50 ft politics was presented by sebastian Payne and produced by molly mintz and anna Dedder. until next time thanks for listening hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.